So, yeah, I'm Ed Schmidt. I'm a member or a partner here at Oasis. I preach from time to time. And usually when I preach, I do what I do because I'm an analytic kind of guy at work. I overthink, I study, I write, I rewrite, and I show up with about 14 pages of 20-point font, double-spaced, and I kind of read, and I get lost, and I get confused, and sometimes it goes well, and sometimes it doesn't. Well, this ain't going to be that. <laughs> so, <laughs> in fact, it's really interesting the way this played out. Uh, I, I've had a, a fairly horrible week. I've made some really bad choices and decisions and behaviors. I've been really bored and frustrated at work, but I can't get up from my desk because that phone might ring. I'm a consultant. You never know when the client's going to call. The dog's been old and cranky and sick and insisting on getting up way too early for walks when we're trying to sleep in. Kim's been very busy, my wife. So yesterday I was going to go help do some yard work for, for Deb Gulledge, and I kind of reversed my decision on that and said, no, I'm going to be selfish and take care of myself. And last night I was getting ready for bed, and Kim was out with one of the neighbors, and I had the opportunity to go to a party, and I said, no, I'm going to be selfish and sit in my jammies and relax and get a huge night's sleep, and everything's going to be awesome. In fact, I might even blow off church tomorrow because Kim has to go to a conference. <laughs> and, and so she comes home from seeing her friend last night, and I said, Kim, you and the dog are sleeping in Austin's room because he's away at college because I'm going to sleep tonight, dang it, and I might even sleep in and skip church. So it was 7.50 this morning when my phone rang, and I was still hell-bent, pardon the expression, that I was going to sleep in, so I ignored the phone. And it was 7.53 that an email came in, and right next to the email, you know, the phone does a little beep, and I always leave it on really low ringer because the kids are in college. You never know if they're going to get in a wreck. So 7.53, I get simultaneous rings. One is an email, and one is a text. And the text was from Jim Talbot following up on the phone call that I so conveniently ignored. And actually, let me read you the text. It was a great exchange this morning. It's 7.53 a.m. Ed's asleep thinking he's going to blow off church. Hey, Ed, Dennis can't be at church. He messed up his back and he's going to the hospital. He wanted to know if you could throw together a quick message. Now, let me... Let me the, this thing about preaching, is, is this, it's a horrible, horrible responsibility. So we should really be thankful for how faithful and how good Dennis is. You, you, yeah, yeah. And one of the things you just don't do is throw together a quick message. <laughs> um, but Dennis was going to talk about Noah and faith. And I think Noah and faith, and I hope I'm not stealing his thunder because he'll probably do it next week, is really talking about, or at least to me, the faith we're supposed to have and that God enables us to have is as big as that ark. And that ark is a picture of, of what our faith can and perhaps should be. It's huge. It can hold everything. And the story of Noah and God's blessing of that faith is incredibly important. Uh, it is my hope and my cautious expectation that what I have to share this morning will be a reflection of my faithfulness lately in study and what's been on my heart. So let's pray, and I do indeed have something to share with you. Father, thank you, of course, for Dennis. Thank you, of course, for the opportunity we have to come together as a church family and dedicate and bless a baby. Father, thank you that you are the God of faithfulness to us and a God that calls us and through the Holy Spirit's work in our lives enables us to be faithful to you. This morning, I pray that that will be reflected in the the scripture 
and the message I have to share. In Jesus' name, amen. So we'll start this way. And it's a story that I just copied and pasted from a site called Bible.org this morning. And I think it's relevant to where I am and what I think is, is relevant to share with you. Here's the story. A young man spends hours working on his car, laboring meticulously to make it a showplace, a showpiece. He not only restores the car to its original condition, but he overhauls the engine, modifying it to obtain maximum performance. He invites a couple of friends to cruise around the streets of Dallas with him, showing off his handiwork. They stop at a local hangout for hamburgers, and they meet another young man who also has a high-performance automobile. Each begins to boast about his car and how it's faster than that of his rival. And eventually, they race down a major street at high speed. One man presses his car beyond its limits. It careens out of control. It strikes other automobiles, eventually killing a young mother and her child standing in front of their yard talking with friends. The young man responsible for the death of these two innocent people did not set out that night to kill someone with his car. He did, however, want to show off. He wanted to show others how well he had transformed a tired old car into a beautiful muscle machine. He wanted to impress others with how fast his car was and how skilled he was as a driver. And we as people and as churches and as countries may not kill people in their front yard, but we do the same thing in many ways, wanting to show off, wanting to differentiate, wanting to assert. So this morning, I want to go sort of my own personal reflections on my own week. I want to talk about some of the wrestling and, and my own personal problem of being a news addict for the last six weeks, month, six months, whatever it is. I want to reflect to you or for you my own personal problem of how I've been behaving on Facebook lately. And I want to go right at some of my own personal thoughts and emotions and behaviors lately, like selfishly thinking I was going to sleep in this morning and skip church. Hello. Um, <laughs> So today, I'm going to do that by sharing with you a little bit of the history and reflecting and commenting on a little bit of the history of the divided kingdom in the Old Testament, the divided kingdom of God's chosen people. It's about politics, yes. It's about alliances and allegiances. But more importantly, it's about how disunity happens and what that can cause. So, how did governments play out for God's chosen people in the Old Testament? Well, if we go back, way back, into the book of Judges, the theory was that God was the leader. It was sort of a theocracy. God was in charge, and he had prophets as mouthpieces. Those mouthpieces, the prophets, were providing the people God's direction, God's guidance. These are the, these are the big guys, guys like Moses and Samuel. Well, once Joshua led the people into the Promised Land, which is, of course, the, the territory in the Middle East, Jerusalem, etc., that was to be the forever home of God's chosen people, the land was chunked out. It was divided out. That's how we get the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob. Each have a chunk of land in the Promised Land that's going to be theirs. And the military leadership, the civil law, the day-to-day -day running of the show, if you will, fell upon the judges. But the ultimate authority, the ultimate leadership, 
was through the prophets and directly through the word of God. But, you know, this was also a time, if you look at the history, and it's really an interesting thing to do. I encourage folks to try it once in a while. Overlay uh, secular, whatever you got in school, sort of ancient history over what we have in the Bible, because you'll never guess. It fits. It actually does overlay. So this was a time of, of war. You know, Josh led these guys into the promised land. Well, it wasn't vacant. You know, this wasn't sort of a, a brownfields redevelopment. There were people living there, and they kind of liked where they lived. Uh, and if you think about the Middle East today, they still do. Um, so the 12 tribes moved in to settle this area, as they were told to, and it was, it was pretty ugly. The people that had already lived there didn't want to go. So there was a lot of wars, a lot of fighting, a lot of stuff going on. And so the people were getting frustrated and tired. And this is a hard, arduous, big task that God had given them. Settle the land. I mean, it's not go build houses because it's vacant lots. It's kick out the people that are there, the Canaanites and all these, quote, bad guys. So they were getting tired. They needed something they needed someone. They needed a Moses, almost. So they called out for a king. And that's where we go from the theocracy and God is in charge speaking through the prophets to the monarchies of the kings. And that's where we get Saul from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes. And Saul and his right-hand man, John Boy, Jonathan, did great. They, they received the anointing, they received the will of the people, and they became, he became king with his right-hand man. Um, Jonathan beat up the Philistines and got rid of one of the big, ugly groups that was causing him trouble as they tried to settle the land. It was all great. Well, what happened? It was great while Saul was obedient to God and listening. And then Saul sort of stopped listening a little bit and they got rid of the Philistines, that's great. But as soon as he took the eye off the ball, Saul, and started doing things his own way and became arrogant, they took a dive. And this is where if you look back in the history, into the books of Kings and Chronicles, you see that we had what amounts to the first civil war among the 12 tribes. You see, Saul's son was a dude, I love Old Testament names, named Ish. Bosheth, and he was supposed to be the official king, right? It passes down generation to generation. Um, but some up-and-comer from this other tribe, the tribe of Judah, didn't quite see it that way. That other up-and-comer from that tribe of Judah is somebody we may be familiar with named David. So David and Ishi didn't quite get along, and we had a little civil war for a couple of years, and eventually we know how this works out. David emerged as the king and reunited the kingdom. So we had about a two-year split with a divided kingdom. So Judah and the tribe of Simeon kind of pushed back on the secession, and we had the civil war between the house of David uh, and the house of uh, Benjamin, essentially the house of Saul. Uh, but it didn't last long, and Humpty Dumpty got put back together. And as we know, David was a man after God's own heart. He had a lot of warts, so it's okay to have your warts. You know, he did some pretty thinking about behaviors and, and so on. 
you know, what's a little adultery, what's a little sending somebody out to get killed so you can have your little fling and cover things up and all that. David was really, if you want to look at him as a bad dude, he was a bad dude. But if you read things like Psalm 51, after he's confronted with the sin of Bathsheba and, and just bears his heart to God, he was also a man who knew his human failings were because he's human. And he leaned on God and he pressed into God and he loved God. That's why David is the man after God's own heart. So David was a good king. And David passed on the kingship to Solomon. And Solomon, we know, is the richest, the wisest, all that kind of stuff. He's the guy that says there's nothing new under the sun. Solomon was a pretty good king. And he ruled, and then he died. At the death of Solomon is where we start to get in to the biggie. This is almost perhaps like what happened a couple weeks ago in some much greater way, and I'm not going to get into politics. But at Solomon's death, we got the second civil war, the big civil war, the big split, the big divided kingdom. Because under Solomon, there had grown some tension in the land of Israel, we'll call it. And this is when we get into 1 Kings chapter 12. We see that the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are in power. Perhaps, even though they're the minority, right, there's 12 tribes and only two are in power. Perhaps this is like the Shiites today in places like Israel, uh, Iraq and Syria. Don't want to say that there's absolute correspondence here or lead anybody to make any crazy assumptions about how things are going to play out in the Middle East, but I think it's a good analogy. Because then the other tribes were feeling like they had been repressed by this minority, even though they were the major majority. This is sort of like your Muslim Sunnis, perhaps, in Iraq and Syria. Doesn't matter. It's just an extension, something to think about, that there's nothing new under the sun, right? These tensions that we're seeing today um, shouldn't surprise too many people. Regardless, uh, the little group, the, I'm sorry, the majority, uh, the ten tribes and their leader, Jeroboam, went to Rehoboam, the leader of the minority who assumed the kingship from uh, Solomon, and they asked him a question. They asked him a favor. They said, yo, Rehoboam, we need a break. You're repressing us. Help us out. Lighten the burden. Give us a break. And here's the story of that directly from 1 Kings. Um, I do apologize that I'm not quite the miracle worker that I may be. There are no slides. <laughs> there are no graphics. Uh, but I think the word of God is sufficient. So here's how this plays out in 1 Kings chapter 12, if I can find it. No rush. Kickoff's not till a little after one. And by the way, just as an aside, baby dedications are great. Melody's worship is great. I love seeing a Steelers jacket. That just makes it all complete. <laughs> so this is a great day to be here. Speaking of that kickoff time. Anyway, 1 Kings chapter 12. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon, he returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten this harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. And Rehoboam, pretty smart guy, answered, 
He said, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. Solomon's a pretty smart guy. He had a pretty smart inner circle. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. And they replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. In other words, heal. You've got people that are a little bit angry. They're a little bit tired. They're frustrated. They've been repressed. Let's be 12 tribes again. Let's go after unity under God. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and who were serving him. Why listen to the wise old guy when you got your young yes-man? He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, tell these people who have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, and I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I will scourge you with scorpions. And three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. And the king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given to him by his elders. He followed the advice of the young men, the yes men. And he said this, just what his yes men said. My father made your yoke heavy, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips, I'll scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. And for this turn of events from the Lord to fulfill the... Uh, so the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nabat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. Well, that's lovely. Point. He had a shot to unify. He had a shot to submit. He had a shot to do the right thing, and he chose not to. And what was the result? This is when you get the big blow up. The divided kingdom of northern Israel and southern Judah was born. And if you look through the way history progressed through the Bible, and you can see it again if you look at your ancient histories, the northern kings tended to be evil, and the southern kings tended to be sort of up and down in terms of how they were faithful to God. But if you look at 1 Kings 12, again, we see the tribes of Judah and Benjamin as in power and living well. I like to make the analogy to the Shiites because it doesn't surprise me. The majority are repressed, even though they're the majority. Again, perhaps like the Sunnis. Doesn't matter. Their leader of the, of the majority said to Jeroboam, to the leader of the minority, lighten up, and he would not. So the south, again, up and down in their relationship with God. The north now tending to be run by bad dudes. Eventually, the north was conquered in the judgment of God, the Babylonian exile, all that stuff, and they were scattered. This is how we end up having Jewish people, oh, by the way, the Hebrews, all over the world at the time, the known world. The south, on the other hand, uh, was eventually conquered, and they were exiled. I'm sorry, they're the ones that got exiled by the Babylonians. Point. We had God's people, the chosen, scattered all over the place. We had two kingdoms separated and never united. Here's how it played out in the Word. 
When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king. This is heavy. What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, O Israel. Look after your own house, O David. So the Israelites picked up their toys and went home. The Bible says the Israelites went home. But as for the Israelites who were living in the towns of Judah, Rehoboam still ruled over them. For the most part, they went home and they scattered. So there's five observations that we can pull from this. And I'm going to add a sixth because it's important. Back to this Bible.org site, the five things that it points out about Rehoboam. One, he was arrogant. When I said last night to Kim, get yourself and that dog away from me, I'm sleeping in, lady. That's an example of arrogance. <laughs> uh, he wanted, he needed, and he craved control. He liked having that power. He didn't listen to godly advice, right? The older, wiser folks told him, chill, let's reunite. Nah. Why? Because four, he was on a power trip, and he really liked kind of being that ruthless leader. He liked being the big dog. And fifth, and this is what's really important, I think, for us as the family of Christ, he did not take advantage of chances to heal and restore unity so time, time is the fifth point, cemented the rift, cemented the split. But God is good, right? Because if you then warp ahead into the New Testament, when the church was growing, think about Acts, think about Paul and those missionary journeys, where did Paul always go when he started to talk? He went to the temple. Town after town after town, place after place after place. How did the temple end up there? How did there end up being an, an audience of, of, the, of the Jews to speak to? Because of this very situation, this split from thousands of years ago, literally over a thousand years ago, God in his sovereignty put the people just where he needed the people to be so that it was time to grow a church and heal under the unity that comes under that cross. There were people to hear the message and people to plant the seeds and to grow the churches. So I am pretty thankful for that. And we have that opportunity here. We have that opportunity now, no matter what we're talking about. Which brings me to the Gospels. And this is not going to be quite as much of a history lesson in preachy. It's just going to be an interesting food for thought as we prepare to go home and watch the warriors bang into each other with their pads and their helmets. Or in the case of Rich and I, watch Jimmy Johnson win a seventh NASCAR championship. Um, <laughs> that was for you. I'm not a big fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll talk, Rich. So I'm going to go to Luke, and I want to go to the Good Samaritan, because the Good Samaritan is a message and a concept and a series of thoughts that I think we need today and every day. And I'll just read it, and I'm going to let you guys do most of the analysis and contemplation on it. Luke chapter 10, verse 25 to 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the expert answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
But the wise guy with the arrogance and the not listening and the control problem says in verse 29, but he wanted to justify himself, so he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, one of his own people, was going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, one of his own people, when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, one of those, ich, we don't talk to them, touch them, associate with them. But a Samaritan, when he came to the place, or as he traveled, came to, where the, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he put a man on his own donkey, and he took him to an inn, and he, and he took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, and when I return, I will repay you for any extra expenses you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan? The expert replied, the one who had mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. And I just want to leave that there. I want to close this way, however. I want to reflect on another set of the words of Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. And I'm going to read it, and I'm going to comment on it, and we're going to close in prayer. Because as we think about the divided kingdom, we think about the Good Samaritan, and then we apply the Lord's Prayer as it's written in Matthew, it comes down to three things. For us, just as much as it came down to for them at the time of the Samaritan and for them at the time of the division of the kingdom. It comes down to unity, it comes down to mercy, and it comes down to love. For me, that means it comes down to that thing right over there, the cross, and the work of Jesus on it. So for us today, this is as relevant as it could be, whether we think about the election, whether we think about race and ethnicity, whether we think about social issues like gender and abortion, whether we think about political affiliation, and even as we think about our own gripes within the local church, it comes down to unity, it comes down to mercy, and it comes down to love. So let's take a look at the Lord's Prayer as we close. And again, I'll do Matthew, and I will do six, if I can find it. I used to know my Bible, but then I got woken up at 9 o'clock or 8 o'clock this morning. <laughs> Matthew chapter 6, we'll begin in verse 9. This, then, is how you should pray, and I want this to be our prayer as we close. Our Father in heaven. Our Father is in heaven. He's over everything, and yet he's able to be called by us Abba, Daddy. He's so eminent, and yet he's so present. Hallowed be your name. Hallow is, is a respect, a praise, an honor. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. It doesn't matter what's going on around here. Our time here is such, boom, brief. It's an eternal question. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about the big guy, the one who we should hallow. It's about the guy whose kingdom will come, whose victory was won on the cross. 
Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. It ain't about stuff. It ain't about power. It's not about what we can do in our own strength, what we want, what we think we need, what we chase after. It's about our daily bread. The living word of Jesus Christ, the living presence of God in the form of the Holy Spirit, and the work on the cross. Therefore, forgive us our debts, or as my Episcopal friend said in the Book of Common Prayer, our trespasses, as we've forgiven also our debtors or our trespassers. Don't matter who's wronged you, because guaranteed you've wronged somebody else. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And God, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The devil roams like a lion trying to figure out who he's going to eat, find the temptation, spot the temptation, point at the temptation, call it a temptation, and resist. Lean on the cross, lean on the Holy Spirit, lean on Jesus Christ. Resist the temptation. And instead, let the Trinity in its whole deliver you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the gift of life. Thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ dying to, to secure for us a pathway to unity with you. And Lord, through the submission we all have to you and through the presence of the Holy Spirit, thank you for the opportunity, the possibility that we have to get over ourselves in whatever sphere we're thinking and have unity as your people, as your church, here on earth, even as we await the perfection and the ultimate unity that waits for us in heaven. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have a response to this or some business to do, we have elders and prayer warriors that come up at the cross. Um, so as we're dismissed, which we now are, feel free to come on up and pray or talk to one of us. Thank you.